Amen. So, as Jesse said, uh, this is timely. Um, I had the title and the theme for this sermon before we had our meeting this week. And as the Lord often does, he providentially prepares what I'm going to be preaching um, by working in people and circumstances. And so uh, we are absolutely going to talk about friends and counselors. And Jesse mentioned, and us as a church are grieving what happens when you trust in the wrong counselors, when you make friends with the world. And who we listen to and who we trust are vitally important. So I want us to think about our view of friendship. How do we view friends? And so when we're children, who are our friends? Uh, Our friends pretty much serve one purpose when we're kids, right? To play and have fun. That's it. Um, And that's okay. That's what kids are going to do. They play like it's their job because it is for a while. But the older we get, we should be more selective in our friends, right? Uh, Most of our friends, as we get older, they become, we have these different peer groups by different activities and uh, sports and interests. So organized play. Uh, That's basically what it looks like in, you know, middle school, high school. Hopefully, as adults, um, we should be more discerning, surrounding ourselves with people who can give wise input. Yet sadly, I think most people never graduate beyond that. I think most people never graduate beyond play friends. I think even most adults keep people around who are the most fun to be around. The people they surround themselves with are those who you can have fun together, but it doesn't ever have to get too serious. We can just kind of keep things comfortable and light. But here's the problem. No matter who you surround yourself with, in what age, they become your counselors. Because as a kid, you don't want to listen to your parents. You'll listen to your friends first. And even as an adult, we often don't want to listen to the authorities we we should, but those closest to us will have an ear that most others might not. And so I spent all of my pre-Christian life with friends like this. Friends that were fun to be around, who wanted to do what I wanted to do, and it led to nothing but trouble. It led to lots of sin, and they were, I had uh, many friends, quote unquote, but all of the worst mistakes I made in my life were with those friends. It was even my church friends who taught me how to shoplift. So be very discerning, even in the church. So I'm combining two themes this morning. These initially were two individual sermons, but I think they fit well together, and they are inextricably linked. And I'm passionate about this because so many people neglect this. Who your friends are will be who you listen to. So the type of friends you surround yourself with is going to be the type of counsel you receive. And I think so many people neglect this or never even consider it. Who am I listening to? Who am I surrounding myself with? Um, And the Bible has a lot to say about this. So I want to give you a picture of biblical friendship. And we're going to run through these passages quickly. uh, But I want you to see that the Bible has a lot to say about friendship. But I, I want you to pay attention because this is much deeper and much more meaningful than how we would often describe friendship. So first, Psalm 119, verse 63. These will be on the screen. If you want to flip with me, you can. I am a companion... Of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. This is what biblical friendship looks like. My companions, those I surround myself with, are the ones who fear the Lord, are the ones who obey him. Because if I want to please the Lord, how can I do that if no one around me wants to please the Lord? There's one example, probably the most... uh, Beautiful example, apart from Jesus, that we'll look at in a moment, is David and Jonathan. Uh, in 1 Samuel 18, this is kind of the friendship for the ages. Their friendship withstood the test of infighting and, and war and accusations, but God brings together the hearts of these two faithful men. Uh, 1 
1 Samuel 18, 1. As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, who was Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, David, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped off himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. He's the prince, he's the king's son, and he gives the royal robe to his friend and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What an amazing picture. David is a threat to his father. His father will hate him and try to kill him many times. But Jonathan, because of his love and his friendship, gives him all of his royal clothing and royal armaments. And his soul is knit to him. These two were, in, were undividable friends. What a beautiful picture. There are also other friends that we should take on. Uh, Proverbs 7. You saw this a while ago. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Proverbs 7, 4. And call insight your intimate friend. Our friends should be the people of God, those whose hearts are after God like David, and the word of God, his wisdom, his insight. But most importantly, James chapter 2, verse 23, this is the only, this friendship is, the, is what the rest of them are contingent upon. James 2, 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. This is the friendship that matters. Paul says, if we have faith in the true and living God, we are sons of Abraham, sons through faith. And by that faith, we are called friends of God. Imagine that. What enemies could you ever be afraid of if God is your friend? And if God is your friend, how could you not find your companions with those who love him and fear him and keep his commandments? How could you not see his wisdom and his insight as your friend? How could you not love those who love him? It's a beautiful picture of biblical friendship. And so now I want to look at the prime example, our corporate reading from earlier in John 15. And I love that the gospel, as it always does, it takes these rich biblical themes and it deepens them. It, it defines them. It brings them home. It ties them to the person and work of Christ. John 15 we usually look at John 15 for the vine and the branches. Jesus begins by saying, I'm the vine. I am your source of life. If you're attached to me, you will live. I am feeding you. If you abide in me, you'll have everything you need. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on to tell them that he loves them enough to share with him the love that the Father has with him. So there's this uniting to Christ, the uniting that comes from, that happens with the Father and Son now happens with the Son and many sons. And then picking up in verse 12, notice where he begins here. What is the basis of friendship? This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So number one, the love of God. If you have received the love of God, it should result in love for the brotherhood. And if it doesn't, I want you to think about the love of God. If Christ loved us enough to lay down his life for us, and not just making this individualistic, but he laid down his life for us and everyone else who is in Christ. How could we not love the ones who Christ loved enough to die for? What greater love could there be than to say, take me instead of them? This is how we're called to love one another. Husbands, this is called, how we're called to love our wives. Because of Christ's love for us. 
The two things that mark the disciples of Jesus is love for one another and obedience. The fruit that comes out of it. You are my friends, verse 14, if you do what I command you. Because of our gratefulness. Because our Savior laid down his life for us. Because our sins are forgiven, we want to be obedient. We're not legalists. We're not moralists. Doing good things could never save us. But if we are saved from our sin, if we are saved to good things, how could we not do them? Jesus said, you'll know. If you've received my love, if you've received my mercy, how could you not love and be merciful and patient to others who've received my love and my mercy? If you've been saved, if I've given you eternal life, and I ask that you honor me and give me glory, and I'll provide for you forever, how could we not be obedient? And those that are, we do it joyfully. We do it gratefully because it comes out of his love and we respond in love. And then he takes us a step further in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master's doing, but I have called you friends. We don't think about this, but remember, we just saw pictures of people who've lived in slavery, serving others, owning nothing for the last 10 years. None of us has ever done that. but you're no longer servants. You're not workers in the house. You're not earning anything to belong to me. I have called you friends. I have called you family. I have brought you out of your slavery to your sin and made you slaves to righteousness. And in that slavery to righteousness, it is joy and it is friendship and it is communion with me. And so if you are in Christ, and he calls you friend, rejoice. This is reason for celebration. This is reason for encouragement. And this should drive everything else we think about this morning. Because if Jesus came to purchase his friends, how should we view the friends we keep? How should this affect our view of friendship? And how does he describe the friends? For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. If you are a friend of Christ, he becomes your counselor. He makes known all the wisdom of the Father, everything we need for life and godliness, he makes known to us. He is our friend and he is our counselor. And our friends and our counselors should align with him. So, this is going to be a practical sermon, but this is shallow apart from the love of God and faith in Christ. You can get a lot of good moral things out of Proverbs, of course, but if you don't get this, if you don't get friendship with Christ, if you don't get faith in him, then all this stuff is shallow moralism. But if you do, if Christ's friends are your friends, and if his love drives everything you do, then this is a great shelter from the world and protection from much harm to come. And an encouragement, because he has not left us as widows and orphans. He has brought us into a family, and he has given us a family full of hopefully, Lord willing, wise friends and counselors. Let's pray, and then we'll get into Proverbs. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. You are a great and merciful God. We could never comprehend how you could make your love known to us, how you could send your Son to take on flesh and die for us, how you could redeem us from our slavery, pay the price that we deserved. That you would pull us out of our debts. You would place Christ in our place and bring us into your family.
Call us friends. Give us counsel. Unite us to yourself. Lord, how can we ever comprehend the depths of your love? How could, ever, how could we ever repay your grace? How could we ever replicate your mercy? Lord, help us to be a faithful people who love one another, who obey you. May your spirit today convict our hearts. When we look to counselors outside of you, may your spirit today encourage us and reassure us when our brothers and sisters love us enough to walk alongside us, what a joy and a blessing it is for the union and the peace and the purity that we enjoy in the body of Christ. May you protect her. May you protect her from isolation, from unwise counsel. May you protect her from wolves without and wolves within. May we be true friends to one another and counsel each other to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the Proverbs should be listed in your bulletins, and let's walk through those. So we're going to look at the friends first, then the counselors, um, and then we're going to look at a couple enemies. And so I will move fairly quickly, uh, but there's so much practical application. I could spend a sermon on each one of these, uh, but we're going to move, again, fairly quickly. The first one, though, will act as sort of a thesis verse for everything else you're going to see afterward. Proverbs 13, verse 20. We'll see this all throughout our text this morning. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Everything else we're going to see this morning is going to build off of that. This is pretty, it, this should be obvious, but essentially, show me your friends and I can tell a lot about you. Show me who you surround yourself with. Show me who you walk with, who you live life with. And I can tell a lot about you without you saying a word. We will, and here's another thing I want you to see. We will rarely, maybe never, rise above the level of our closest companions. Those who are closest to you will either pull you up or hold you down. If all of your friends are knucklehead D students, even if you are an A student, you won't be for long. Fill in what other, uh, other analogy you want. Um, so here, I want to go to Bishop J.C. Ryle for a moment. And um, his little book, Thoughts for Young Men, is fantastic. If you have a young man or even a young woman, for that matter, this is really good. Uh, and so he gives a lot of great counsel, a lot of examination for young men to hear. There's a longer quote up there, but I want to read a sentence earlier on first. He says, never be satisfied with friendships of anyone who will not be useful to your soul. Let me say that again. Never be satisfied with friendships of anyone who will not be useful for, to your soul. If we believe that we have a soul and there is eternal life ahead of us, shouldn't our friends be those who are useful for eternal life. The thing, the, the, the soul, what God sees, not what, the, the, what man sees, not the outside, but the inside of us. So here's where he goes on. He said, you must remember we are all creatures of imitation. Precept may teach us, but it is example that draws us. That is definitely true. There is that in us all that we are always disposed to catch the ways of those with whom we live. Also true. And the more we like them, the stronger does the disposition grow. Essentially, the more time you spend with someone, the more you start to think and act and respond the way they do. Without our being aware of it, he says, they influence our tastes and opinions. We gradually give up what they dislike, and we take up what they like in order to become closer friends with them. Anyone ever done this to our harm? And worst of all, we catch their ways in things that are wrong far quicker than in things that are right. This, this next line got me. Health, unhappily, is not contagious, but disease is. This is also true in friendships. 
It is far more easy to catch a chill than to impart warmth and to make each other's religion dwindle away than grow and prosper. Young men, young women, old men, old men, old, old, old women, I ask you to take these things to heart. Before you let anyone become your constant companion, before you get into the habit of telling him everything and going to him with all your troubles and all your pleasures, before you do this, ask yourself, will this be a useful friendship to me or not? Hmm. As Jesse said earlier, bad company does indeed corrupt good morals. So, let's move on. Chapter 17, verse 9. Here's another great sign of true friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. What's this basically saying? Friends go to bat for each other. Whoever, whoever covers an offense, I know that you sinned, I know that you made this mistake, but I will overlook it, I will cover it, I will stand in your place. That is a person who cares more about love than his own pride. But the other side of that, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. We all make mistakes. We all let down our friends. But we all have those friends who keep bringing it up again and again and again, and it just wears on you, and it separates you. This is probably one of the biggest temptations in our marriages. We don't cover offenses with love. We keep bringing them up so that we can be seen right, so that our pride can be justified. Do not do this in your marriage. If you say you forgive your spouse, forgive your spouse. Love them, encourage them, build them up. Surround yourself with people who, with love, will overlook a multitude of sins. Verse 17 of the same chapter. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So we have, and I mean by we, the collective we, Facebook has ruined the term friend. It has. In our modern idea of friend, a friend is the one who likes all your posts and looks at all your pictures. This is not a friend. Don't... This is, this is what we've been trained to think. And in that same vein, we often unfriend people in real life as quickly as we will on Facebook, right? But what are true friends? Look at this verse here. Whoever, um, oh yeah, no, verse 17. A friend loves at all times. This is a true friend. This is no fair weather friend that is gone as soon as you do something that they don't like, at all times, not just when things are easy. Siblings, a brother is born for adversity. Your brother, your sister was born into this. They're stuck with you. A friend makes the choice. A friend places themselves in your life. A, a, a true friend says, I will be faithful and I will be by your side in all seasons. So how your friends react to your adversity will define them. And how you react to someone else's adversity will show what kind of friend you really are. Let's move on. Chapter 18, verse 24. And if it's your first time here, uh, I know this is kind of unorthodox, but this is how we're moving through the book of Proverbs. I'm not here to exhaust everything in every verse, but I want... I want you to be aware of these verses. I want you to go back and spend more, more time in them. I'm giving you just a few comments, a few, few points of application, uh, because there's so many good verses, and I want to get, pack in as many as I possibly can. Um, I was once told that I can, I can pack uh, 20 pounds of theology into a five-pound bag, and I'm, I'm still trying to live that down. Um, but this is what we're doing. Verse 24 of chapter 18. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So here's something, when we talk about friends, I want to make a distinction between companions and friends. A man of many companions may come to ruin. Don't read companion as a synonym for friend. You can have lots of acquaintances, but if you put too much trust in your acquaintances, you could come to ruin. Meaning, if you trust people, you shouldn't. If you have people around you who you can't really trust, it's probably going to turn out for your harm. 
but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, but a true friend. They are closer to you than those who share your DNA. I want to give you a few comparisons. A companion will tell you what you want to hear. A friend will tell you the truth. A companion will hold your hand. A friend will hold you accountable. A companion will pray for you. I'll pray for you, brother. A friend will pray with you. A companion might come when you call. A friend will come when you don't. A companion knows about you, but a friend knows you. I think most people have a hard time with this, and I will say especially in older men. Most older men I talk to do not have one singular guy in their life who knows them, who prays with them, who will hold them accountable, who they can confide in, who actually asks about their souls and challenge them. This is tough for men. I think it was tougher in previous generations. Some of you young guys bear your soul way too quickly, guard it a little bit. But so I want to ask you, how about you? If you take account of your life, how many companions do you have versus friends? How many people promise to pray for you and you never hear from them again? How many people will sit down and pray with you? How many people tell you what you want to hear? And as soon as it gets uncomfortable, they just turn it off and everybody's free in this shallow little bliss of your relationship. Versus someone who tells you the hard things because they love you. Who knows you? Who prays with you? Who asks you hard questions? This is a good account for all of us to take in our lives. All right, let's move on to chapter 27, verse 6. This one, a lot of you are not going to like to hear, but it is certainly true. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. This builds on what we just looked at. Profuse, meaning many, are the kisses of an enemy. You're like, what? This may not make sense. I want you to think about this for a moment. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. What are faithful wounds? We looked at discipline a few weeks ago. A faithful friend, a true friend, they tell each other the hard truth. They correct each other for their own good. Like our Father disciplines those he loves. And those blows, sometimes we need to be slapped across the face figuratively and once in a while literally by those who love us. Because it's for our own good. And we benefit from it later on. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Fake friends who are really enemies, they shower us with compliments. They tell us everything we want to hear. They tell us only the sweet things that, that, that tickle our ears. This is what someone who rejects ter- church discipline fails to realize. They prefer those who will tell you exactly what you want to hear. You're great just the way you are. Everything you do is wonderful. Don't change anything about yourself. You don't need them. Just be around us. This is the call of the book of Proverbs. You listen to Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly. And so let me ask you, which one do you prefer? A friend who wounds you in love? Or someone who gives you kisses all day long just because that's what makes you feel good? Which one do you listen to? Are you more likely to listen to the person who has shown that they loved you time and time again over time? Who's not afraid to have the hard conversations? Or do you listen to the one who puts a smile on everything and is in complete agreement with everything that you think? This is a real question for us. And I hope as we go forward, you're thinking about a lot of these questions that I'm asking. And I hope you go back to these Proverbs and take account in your own life. Verse 9 of the same chapter. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Uh, let's 
here's uh, what's going to draw together our two themes. True friends are true counselors. I need to translate this from the, the Hebrew. is literally comes from his advice from the heart. So earnest counsel is advice from the heart, like one who actually cares. The outflowing of his heart is to give you wise counsel. So what does all this mean? We put all this together. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. When your friend gives you heartfelt, loving counsel, it's like the oil that you put on your sunburn. You know, the calming, soothing, cooling oil of healing to your body. It is the sweet fragrance of a perfume, of a candle that makes you feel calm and comfortable. This is what should go on inside us when someone gives us heartfelt counsel. This is true friendship. So I want us to look at Proverbs 133, one of the shortest, Proverbs, Psalm 133, one of the shortest psalms, but such a beautiful psalm. This is a psalm that I did not appreciate until I became a pastor. Since I have been a pastor, this has become one of my favorite psalms. Why? Because I know how heartbreaking it is to be in division. I know how heartbreaking it is when brothers don't dwell in unity. I know how, much, how many tears are shed, how many hours of sleep are lost when this is not true. But when it is, Psalm 133, a song of a sense of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Can I just get a collective amen there? That is worth repeating. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. What a great, manly, united psalm. Running down onto the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. This is where God dwells. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. I am so thankful that we are in a united church. A unified church that loves one another and serves one another. Yes, we have our flaws. Like, like every family, we have all of our own dysfunctions. But this is true. It is a pleasure to come to church every Sunday morning. It is a pleasure to gather in homes. It is a pleasure to study the scriptures together because we love each other. Show of hands, we're going to do a little participation here. How many people who've been in a church where that is not the case? How many people are still hurting from churches where that is not the case? This sweet oil, soothing oil, sweet fragrance. It comes from earnest counsel. People who love one another and encourage one another, and this is what the Lord blesses. Uh, let's move on to the same or the, the next verse in the same chapter of Proverbs. Proverbs 27, verse 10. Do not forsake your, your friend and your father's friend. Do not go f- to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. This seems, initially when I read this, it seems like three different thoughts. But it's actually one thought. It's one idea. And there's one key word here. Near. Near. So what's being said here is this trusted friend. This is an old friend. This friend is tried and true. This friend is so old that he counseled your father. And so that friend who has been by your side the whole time, who has shown himself to be faithful. When things get difficult, don't run off to a a relative who lives in the next town. Better is a neighbor, a friend, a counselor who is near than a brother who is far away. This counselor who's been in your life all along, who's been tried and true, they are better than someone who is a blood relative who's far away. This counselor knows you, is proven to love you, if indeed you have this type of counselor. So that's what that means if you run across that one. Uh, Verse 17, same chapter. This one is uh, kind of what we all think of when we think of friendship. This Hebrew picture is most often described, uh, used to describe biblical friendship and building up in the church. This is the theme of many men's ministries in many churches, and and, and rightfully so. Um, But there is so much in this imagery that we don't get in the English. So I want to spend 
a little bit of time breaking this, this down. So if you were to read this in the Hebrew, um, it, it, it sounds choppy, but the picture is actually greater than what we get. So in the Hebrew, it'd be, it'd be essentially iron against iron sharpens. Man sharpens the face of his friend. What? Iron against iron sharpens. Man sharpens the face of his friend. Let's, let's break this down. How do you sharpen iron? In those days, iron was the, the, the hardest metal that they had. So they would make spears and, and arrow tips and swords out of it. How do you sharpen a hard metal? Only something as hard can sharpen it. And so as iron sharpens iron, iron against iron. So one was the blade face, the cutting edge of the sword. The other was a wet iron stone, which would be rubbed against the face of the sword. It must go against it. There must be friction. Because what happens in battle is when a sword cuts through bone or hits a tree limb or whatever, it dulls and it, and it, it frays and it gets out of shape. And only by tension and only by being rubbed up against something else that is hard can it be sharp again, can it be straightened again. But this word for sharpen is often used for the tongue. This is synonymous with speech. We, we, we know Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So often in Scripture, speech is spoken of as sharp. So what is implicit within this is that here's how iron is sharpened. By words. The, that words from one hard man to another will smooth out the rough edges. We'll take what is, what is dull and make it sharp again. So as, a, so as a man speaks hard words against the face of his friend, this is no passive-aggressive friendship. This is a man who looks another man in the eye and says what is needed to smooth out and sharpen his rough edges. I think men are afraid of this. This is why so many men struggle here. But that's what makes us sharp. That's what makes battle-ready soldiers. And that's why the comparison is here. Because if you need to go out into battle, if life has beaten up the blade end of your sword, you need it to be sharpened. And that's not an easy process. It's not a comfortable process. But this is the essence of Christian friendship. Face-to-face, one against another, for the sake of sharpening. For the sake of growth. So I want you to think about this for a moment, every element of this verse applies to our friendships. And this is a great model for Christian discipleship. I've got five application points from this. Number one, like iron, friends must be firm and unwavering. All seasons. Number two, life, battle, difficulty makes you dull. You need friction to mature and to become sharp. If you are a dull sword, if you are a blunt object that can't cut a piece of paper, keeping life easy and keeping people around you who will not challenge you is going to leave you dull and leave you ineffective and leave you powerless in a battle. Number three, we must use our words. We must. Sharp and piercing at times. Just like a, bl a blade that is dull needs to be corrected, so we too need to be corrected. Number four, it must be face to face. How many times have you tried to give someone counsel over text message and it just fell flat or got misunderstood? <laughs> over the phone is not good enough. If you love someone, if you care enough about someone, if you care enough about growing face-to-face, -face, any important meeting you must have, find time in your schedule, do it face-to-face. -face. 
That is how we sharpen one another. They need to see the love in your eyes and the seriousness in your eyebrows. Number five, if you do this, this produces sharp, battle-ready, mature Christians. Amen. All right, now let's get into counselors. This section is going to be much shorter. So here's what I want you to see up to this point. If you keep good company, uh, and if you need those later, David, just ask me. I'll email them out to everybody. I, I, I'm sure you will. Um, David needs it again. Uh, we'll, he'll, he'll send it out in the email this week. If we keep good company, they will in turn give good advice. If our standard is here for our friends, that's the type of counsel we're going to receive as well. So I'm not going to go through all these verses. I'm just going to read them slowly, and I want you to consider them. Uh, they should be in your bulletin. We're just going to walk through them. Notice the consistency here, the continuity in all of these Proverbs, and I'm going to give you a couple takeaways. Proverbs 11, verse 14. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Most of these do not need explanation. They just need repetition. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Chapter 13, verse 10. By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. By insolence or stubbornness comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. Chapter 15, verse 22. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Chapter 20, verse 18. Plans are established by counsel. By wise gu guidance, wage war. Plans are established by counsel. By wise guidance, wage war. This is consistent throughout all the Proverbs. The wise desire instruction. But there is no knowledge, there is no wisdom if you don't take advice. Where do you think this wisdom and knowledge comes from if you won't listen to anyone? Is kind of the point here. A couple main points here. The wiser your counselors, the better. The more your counselors, the better. And counselors should be people whose lives are worth imitating. The wiser your counselors, the better. The more your counselors, the better. And counselors should be people whose lives are worth imitating. Look at Philippians 3.17. We just finished Philippians. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. These should be our counselors. So here's what I need to address. Counsel is not confirmation. Counsel is not confirmation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This is what most people seek without realizing it. They're going to go around and look for counselors, quote unquote, until they find the right one to tell them exactly what they want to hear. That's not counsel. That's confirmation. You can't already have your mind made up and seek counsel. Here's how counsel works. I won't make a decision until I've sought wise opinion. Then, after weighing the counsel, the opinion, the advice that I've received, then I will make my decision. Confirmation says, I know what I want to do, and whoever's on my team is in it with me. Counsel says, I might be making a mistake here. I want to make sure that I proceed in the way that I should. So I'm going to ask other wiser people. Got that? So seek wise friends, not yes men. 
Yes men are a lot of fun, but they will lead you into a lot of folly. And so when I say counselors here, I mean good, godly friends, wise counselors. I'm not talking about professional counseling. Professional counseling is, is certainly helpful, and it can be in situations, but professional counseling is never meant to replace biblical friendship. It is not a substitute for walking side by side with brothers and sisters in Christ. Counselors, biblical counselors, are people who care more about the truth than being liked. They care more about honoring God than affirming your feelings. Because quite often, most often, your feelings are wrong. And if you want to be affirmed in your feelings, you need an emotional support dog, not a counselor. Most of you are looking for emotional support dogs. If you came to me, you came to the wrong office. Because if we've had those conversations, you know that's not me. But you know I love you. And you know I will sharpen you face to face. Because you need it and I need it. We should seek wise friends and wise counsel. What would the church look like if we were vigilant in this? What would the church look like if we were equipped to do this? If we sought wise counsel and gave wise counsel, if we were prepared and ready to walk through difficulty together, I think the health of this church is the way it is because we do this. Most of you do it very well, and that is a great encouragement. But unfortunately, how many are not? How many Christians go through life independent of everyone else? Uh, this is why Titus 2 is such a great model. Titus 2, I want to look at 1 through 8. Uh, I'm not going to exegete this whole thing, but I want to get this, this picture. When Paul says he wants to put every church in order on the island of Crete, what does he tell his, his young disciple Titus? Number one, uh, the gospel. Number two, put elders in place. Number three, the gospel. And then number four, here's how you put things in place. Teach, teach men and women. Chapter two. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What accords with sound doctrine? Doctrine and practice do not, uh, they're not divorced from one another. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Notice he begins with the older. The, the example is set from the, the seasoned, mature saints down to the other ones. And here's the, the conversation I have with a lot of older saints in this, this room. Well, I can't help younger people because I don't have all the theological answers. Where in here did you see all the theological answers? You know how you counsel and lead and disciple a young person? Model Christ-like living to them. Look at these things. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith and love and steadfastness. Men, you can do that. Women, Reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves of too much wine. Teach what is good, and so train young, young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God, God may not be reviled. Women, you can do that. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That sums up so much for men. <laughs> That's why we need one sentence, because it's kind of all-encompassing. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. It begins with the leadership. We have to set examples. It's a weight that I bear and that Jesse bears and that bears and any other elder does. But anyone in a discipleship relationship, we should always in every season of life be seeking for Paul's and seeking for Titus's. We should look to those who are further along the, the race, as we saw in Philippians 3, and those who we can bring along behind us. And if we set this example, we will be a strong, faithful church for many years. And we need that. Older saints, we need you. Young saints, you need to hear this. Many the theology students in here. Theology does not equal wisdom. Remember our definition of wisdom. It is knowledge in the fear of the Lord applied. I'm sorry to say this, but I will take a simple 
seasoned saint who has walked with the Lord for many years than a young theology student as a counselor every day of the week. I would rather walk with a saint who has had to pray their way through difficulty and cry their way through heartbreak and depend on the Lord for their daily bread. And he will bring you through that and you will have that time. But saints, if the Lord has brought you through much, you have much to give to our younger members. All right, lastly, in our last couple minutes, let's look at the enemies quickly of friends and counselors. There are two, two enemies. One is isolation and, uh, and the other is unwise counsel. One is isolation and the other is unwise counsel. All right, here's where this is gonna hit home for quite a few of you in the room. I left one proverb for last. Proverb 18.1. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. There are some of you in this room who you are your only counselor. You are the only person who you speak to. You are the only person who you listen to of anything of any substance. But what does Proverbs say? Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. Guess what? If you've only got one counsel, what counsel do you think you're going to take? You've only given yourself one option. The hardest people to correct are those who have no one else in their life. I talk to so many Christians who think they know it all, who have wrong interpretations of Scripture because they are not sharpened. They don't open themselves up to be sharpened. And they break out against all sound judgment. How true? How many of you have seen this? How many of you have been this? (laughs) Western individualism has infused itself into Christianity. It's just me, myself, and Jesus out on the golf course or the, or the boat or whatever. That is nowhere in Scripture, and that is the exact opposite of what Jesus told us in John 15. The exact opposite of what Jesus prays for in John 17. To love one another. That we be united to one another. That we be each other's friends. We be each other's counselors. How many Christians are walking around as one-man armies? How long do you think a one-man army will last in a battle? Not very long. How how long do you think your dull little sword is going to last when things get difficult? This is an enemy. This isolation fights against friendship and counselors that Proverbs abdicate advocates for I love Solomon as well in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 next book over it'll be on the screen too Uh, you probably know this one but this is this just drives the point home two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and he is not another to lift him up Hopefully that's not you. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how does one keep warm alone? Hey, if it's cold, you got to do what you got to do. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. This is Christian discipleship. Do you know how hard it is for the enemy to attack you and bring you down when you are standing shoulder to shoulder with another mature brother or sister? Do you know how susceptible to attack you are when you stand by yourself? And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you've got godly friends and an abundance of wise counselors, you are safe and secure in the Lord. But if you are that lone wildebeest who is limping behind everybody else, your dinner. That's number one, isolation. Number two is unwise counsel. The other enemy, um, the world takes counsel as well. Satan has counselors. There are plenty of wicked counselors. The interesting thing is in the Old Testament, counsel is most, most usually positive. When we see it in Proverbs, it's always a good thing that we take counsel. When you read through the Gospels, 
You know the only time that the word counsel is used? It's of the scribes and the Pharisees who have come together in counsel with one another against Christ. They came together. They fed off each other. Their evil desires spurred each other on. And Christ went to the cross because of the count, for sin and because of sin. Because Satan has his counselors. And they would love to get you riled up. And those counselors move the masses. Let me give you another just free piece of advice in the society we lived in. The angry mob is always wrong. Put down the pitchforks. But it is usually a couple unwise counselors who are stirring up the evil desires that are within men. Think about that. It was the counsel of the scribes and the Pharisees, of course, and the sovereignty of God. But in man, it was unwise counsel. Not one of these men who were supposed to be leading Israel sought godly advice, sought godly counselors. They surrounded themselves with other evil men, and it led to death. No one goes to hell alone. They bring their friends. And so we must be careful as well. All right, so I want to close with this. There is no middle ground. I want us to look at James chapter 4. There is no middle ground. And so for some of you in this room, you may not know the Lord, and you may be thinking, well, you know, I'm kind of a Christian. I'm kind of walking here, but then I kind of like all this other stuff too, and I've got some good counselors and some not-so-good counselors, and, you know, I'll just pull both sides and see what I come up with. James gives us a very different picture. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. You adulterous people. Well, that started out strong. Uh, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You can't be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. You want to be the friend of God like Abraham? Put your trust in the true and living God, not the world. You want to find yourself an enemy of God? Be a friend with the world. Because it is the world that says define yourself by your gender or your sexual identity. It is the world that says follow your dreams and follow your heart. It is the world that says do whatever is going to make you happy and what gives you the most pleasure now. It is the world that says you have no authority over you. You can be your own God. You can do whatever you want to do. It is the world that that, that tells you there's nothing after this life. It is the world that tells you that there is no God. It is the world that tells you that, that what Jesus did didn't matter. The world is wrong, and the world lies to us every day. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is speaking to Christians here. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. If you are in Christ, we are all drawn to the world. We all listen to the world. But God is gracious. God is merciful again and again. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And he has in Christ. But he yearns jealously after us. We are his friends. Christ bought us with his blood that we would be in him, that we would be with one another. And the spirit yearns jealously after his own. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. I'm going to leave it there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word. Forgive us for the idolatry in our hearts and our desire to find our friends in the world. Forgive us when we isolate ourselves and think that we are above taking good advice. But thank you. Thank you for sending Christ as our king, 
our prophet, our high priest, our brother, our savior, our Lord, our friend. May we take sweet joy in his friendship. May we take solemn encouragement in the friendship of the saints. May we rest in his work on our behalf. May we seek wise counsel that we may please you in all things. Lord, give your church discernment. Give your church discretion. Give your church wisdom. Purify her from the evil one, from the wolves without and the wolves within. Sanctify her in your truth. Unify her in the blood of Christ that we may dwell in unity to the praise and glory of his name. Amen.